really is. And you may have often heard the claim or the statement that Jesus never ever said that he was God. Heard that? Jesus never says, I am God. Well, you read John chapter 8. He does everything else except say those words, I am God. And you'll, by reading it, you'll see, uh, well, I'll just give you one verse, if I can find it. Nah, can't see it. Somewhere in John it says, John chapter 8, um, the one you call the Father, the one you call God, is the Father, the one I am talking about. There we go, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as God, is the one who glorifies me. Yeah, anyway, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for Jesus, and for this opportunity for us to learn. Speak to us, teach us, and shape us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 20 that I just read to you indicates the place where this was happening. John tells us, and for a reason, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. It's the treasury. The treasury in the Jewish temple was in the court of the women. You know, the Holy of Holies, the court of the men, and then outside of that, the court of the women. It was the closest area that the women could actually get to the Holy of Holies. And so therefore, it was a very large and very busy area. And along one side of the treasury, there were 13 large trumpet-shaped inverted trumpet-shaped receptacles, chests, golden chests, I think. They were small at the top and large at the bottom, and that was the treasury department. There were 13 of them, and they had signs on many of them for designated giving, and that as people walked along in the first two, one and two, they'd put the half shekel, which was for the temple upkeep. In the next two, what was money put in there would be for pigeon offerings, the purification sacrifices, buying the pigeons. Uh, number five was uh, money to purchase wood for the sacrifices. Number six was to purchase the incense for their worship. Number seven was for the upkeep of the golden vessels. And the remaining six, the last six, were undesignated giving. And they were either called love offerings or they went to fill in some of the other ones that may have not received enough money. Not far from those 13 large receptacles is where Jesus is standing. And John tells us, draws our attention to it. About 100 feet away there was a hall. And in the hall is where the Sanhedrin met. So Jesus makes this statement and all of these statements in John chapter 8 in a very busy, very public place where the leadership of the Jewish people is within earshot. He does this during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And there were two annual ceremonies that were associated with that feast, that annual feast. Number one was the pouring out of water, John chapter 7. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And the second one was the illumination of the temple. In the centre of where this treasury was, these 13 large receptacles, there were three or four very large torches, and on top of the torches were these large candelabra. And into the top of the candelabra, there was like 65 litres of oil with a wick. And that every night, during the seven days of the feast, every night, the young priest would come out, put a ladder up against these very tall torches. They were reported to have been as high as the highest wall. So they went up to the very top of the temple. And so when they were lit, they gave light, not only through the whole temple, but into the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. The place was just like lit up. If you could imagine, uh, you know, uh, what's the ground, whatever it is, the wool and gabba, the gabba, with all of its lights on. 
And just imagine some of those lights being turned out. You know how you can see that from wherever you're driving in the city? Just checking. Um, maybe we should have morning tea now. Come back later. No? Some churches do that, you know. They have a break now for 15 minutes. Go and have a cup of tea and then come back for the teaching. Hmm, anyway. So this huge light would go out for seven nights. And we don't know when, but some, some commentators think Jesus actually does this not on those nights, but on the night, the last night, when it wasn't lit. It's the last day of the festival, if you like. It's all finished up. They're packing up and going home. And Jesus then says in that context, I am the true light of the world. Not this torch which is being lit. And the torch being lit, by the way, was to remind the Jewish people of that great experience they had in their history where God came to Egypt and delivered them. And do you remember how he led them out? A pillar of fire and of cloud. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was actually one pillar. And the fire was within the cloud and at night time that would shine out. And in the day it was hidden by the cloud. It reminded them of the presence of God that came to deliver them. And that's what light does for the Jewish people. All through the Old Testament, you'll have these allusions to light. It represents God's uh, presence. It represents God's revelation. That's a very common one. It represents holiness or purity. And it also represents this deliverance or salvation. Uh, Darkness is the opposite to that. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, darkness represents either ignorance, lack of knowledge, lack of revelation. It could represent uh, error. Light would be truth. Darkness would be error, falseness. Um, If light represents holiness, then darkness would represent sinfulness, wickedness, evil. You get this contrast painted, and that's certainly the context here. The verse I said at the beginning of the service, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation.'" He is the stronghold of my life. Those three pictures, light, salvation, protection. Psalm 36 verse 9. For with you, with the Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6, 23. Your commandments are like a lamp. Your teaching is like a light. And brings correction for us that we may enter into life. Proverbs 6.23 The prophets, Isaiah 42, he predicts that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. And so this picture of light goes often all the way through. And what Jesus is saying, I believe, when he stands there and he says, I am the light of the world, I am the true light of the world. These large torches that you light during the festivity which we've just finished, they remind you of the pillar of cloud and of fire. Well, there are pictures of me. They were pointing to me. It's almost like Jesus is saying to them, remember the pillar that came between you and the Egyptians at the Red Sea? That was me. Remember the pillar that went before you and led you in the way in the wilderness? That was me. Remember the cloud that came down on the tabernacle? That was me. Remember when God's glory filled the temple of Solomon? That was me. I am the light of the world. I am the Shekinah glory. Without using the words, he's saying, I am God in your presence, manifest hidden in the flesh. Just like the pillar of cloud had the fire within it 
And during the day, the fire was hidden. So the Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, his glory within his fleshly body is covered or hidden. But just like in the pillar of at night time, the light would shine forth. So there were times in Jesus' experience, transfiguration particularly, where his light shines forth. And here he is indicating to these people, whom he knows are going to be pretty resistant to them, that I am the light of the world. And he says to them, um, he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Three things. When you read through John chapter 8, do it this way. I suggest you do it this way. Number one, what does Jesus claim for himself? And we've done some of that. I'll come back and do a bit more. Number two, what does he claim for his followers? Or what does he say about those who follow him? And number three, what does he say to those who reject him, to those who argue with him, who don't accept that what he claims about himself? Use those three sort of headings and the chapter will open up for you and will mesh together in a much stronger, better way. What does Jesus claim for himself? He's claiming to be the divine presence amongst the people. I am the light of the world. The Jewish people, in fact, used to use that phrase, light of the world, but they used it for their, the Old Testament, for the, um, the revelation of God, the scriptures. They used it for the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of God. They used it for the temple, that's the light of the world. They use it for their leaders, you're the light of the world. They would use that phrase. And so now here is Jesus challenging that and saying, I am the true light of the world. It's not the Old Testament revelation. I am now the final and full revelation of God. The Old Testament all points towards me. Read the Old Testament because Moses wrote about me. He kept teaching them and saying it to them. He is the full and final revelation of God and he invited them to follow him. Just like Israel followed the pillar in the wilderness, the pillar of light. In this chapter, likewise, he will go on and he will say very clearly that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, that he's going to be crucified, that he is very one and close with the Father and he in fact uses the divine title, I am on numerous occasions, in unmistakable terms, which the NIV and many of our English versions hide, not hide, um, mess up, that'll do. You'll see it when we come to it. Um, Because just by, it's very poor English, that's their problem. And they're trying to, what did he mean? And they try to flesh it out. But in the process of fleshing it out, we end up missing this very clear thing that he says in the Greek, it's quite emphatic, I M, which is the very title God gave to Moses when Moses said, if I say, what's your name, what am I going to tell them? And God says to them, tell them, I am sent me, sent you to them. So what does Jesus claim for himself? And then secondly, let's move on quickly. What does Jesus claim for his followers? Well, he says in verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They will possess it. They will have the revelation of God which leads to life. They'll have this salvation experience. By implications, Jesus would be saying, follow the Pharisees, follow the priests, follow the scribes and you'll end up in darkness. If he was here today, the Lord Jesus would probably say, follow Confucius, follow Buddha, follow Krishna, follow Muhammad, follow anybody else and you'll end up in darkness. Their road does not lead to life or to the light. It leads to another direction. Just as Israel followed the cloud in the wilderness 
and walked in its light. So we are to follow that. We are to follow the Lord Jesus, he says to his followers, follow his example, follow his teaching, follow his instructions and his prompts. And there's a beautiful story about, in Numbers chapter 9, about the pillar of cloud, how it used to rest over the tabernacle. And the passage says, Numbers 9, middle paragraph, when the pillar of cloud stood still, the people of Israel didn't move. But when the pillar of cloud lifted up, then they packed up their belongings, packed up their tents, and they followed the cloud. Whether it rested for one day, or whether it rested for a week, or a month, or a year, unless the cloud moved, the people of Israel did not move. They stayed under the cloud. They stayed under the leadership. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to stay under his influence, not to head off and to do our own things, but to be submissive and obedient to him, not to run before nor to lag behind. Yesterday at the Leaders GT, this is an aside, yesterday at the Leaders GT I didn't get a chance to say a lot, but I went to that passage in John chapter 20, 21, this is after the resurrection, and you know when Jesus is appearing and disappearing, and this is a time when he has disappeared, and Peter and five or six of the other disciples are up in the Sea of Galilee and Peter says, I'm going fishing. Remember that? And the other disciples said immediately, I'm going to, we're going to. So they all go out fishing, they fish all night and the passage says, and they caught nothing. They were ineffective. And then Jesus is standing on the beach the very next morning at dawn and he asks them a question and he gives them instructions about cast the net down on the right-hand side and you'll catch some fish. The point I made to the ministry leaders yesterday was this. They decided to go and do something by themselves. They didn't do it under divine direction. They didn't do it under divine instruction. They didn't do it after they prayed. They just did it themselves. And when we do things like that ourselves in terms of ministry, then we'll be as effective as they were. We will catch nothing. We can't do it in our own strength. Jesus was very serious when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing spiritually effective. We can do lots of things, but nothing spiritually effective without him. And so to follow Jesus is to listen to his prompts and to do them. Yesterday morning we had Daphne Mock. Some of you will know Daphne. Daphne's been in the church for 20 years or so. She's the mum of Janola and Leonie. And she came to the Leaders GT yesterday and the one message she shared with us was simply, I just listen to the Father. I just do what the Father wants me to do. And he tells her to do things. She's been doing Tai Chi and talking to people and doing little things and people coming around and she's giving books to people. And Because the Father is saying, do this or do that or do something. She's just listening. And if we're going to be a people who are going to be working with God, we need to be a people who are listening, following Jesus. So Jesus makes these claims to his followers that whoever follows me, you won't walk in darkness, you won't walk in ignorance, you won't walk in the wrong way, you won't get into the mess of trouble in terms of morals and things, but you will have the light of life. It will illumine your journey. And then remarkably, the passage will indicate that just as he is, so are we as we follow him. If he is the light of the world, and he is, then as we follow him, we reflect his light to others where he has placed us. We need to serve the Lord Jesus in the church, but we also and must serve the Lord Jesus in our workplaces or in our university campuses or in our schools 
And we need to be following the Lord Jesus, especially in our homes. Being authentic, consistent followers of him before our family, before our loved ones, especially there and out there. And then they will see the light of life, his light shining through us. Someone is watching us and God most often works this way. I think it's Francis of Assisi. Who, said, uh, who is claimed to have said this, we should witness every day and, if necessary, use words. We should witness every day and, if necessary, use words. What do you think he meant? We should live the life. We should be authentic. The way we speak, the way we act, our attitudes to people, the way we relate, our work ethic and the way we behave at home, we should just be consistent, genuine, fair-dinkum followers of Jesus. And we should live that life before others authentically. And if necessary, we should use words. Now, a corrective. Apparently, Francis of Assisi has never said it. Because if he did say it, we can't find it anywhere in any book written about him, by him or of him. So it may be one of those things that has just grown up over the years, you know, where one pastor says that, and another pastor quotes that, and another commentator picks it up and says it, and then 50 years later we all think that he really did say it. And so there's been research done, and perhaps it's not by Francis of Assisi. Well, I don't care. It doesn't matter who said it, does it? I think it's a great truth. I would just want to modify it just slightly. I would say we should witness every day, and when there is an opportunity, we should use words. That's the biblical balance. We are not instructed to go into the world just blab, 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 blab. We're instructed, to, or nor are we instructed to go into the world and just live the life. We're instructed to go into the world and live the life and to talk the talk. Because the gospel is good news and it's something that you are to tell. But it has to be lived. Now I know you know that, so I don't need to emphasise that more than that. What does Jesus say to his followers? He says... Um, Follow me and you will never walk in the darkness. Later on in the passage, outside the passage that I read to you, he also says, verse 31, to those who came to believe in him, if you hold to my teaching, if you continue in my teaching, then you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's to us. If you know Jesus... We are to continue in his teaching and the truth that we discover ever increasingly will set us free. Verse 51, he'll say, if you keep my word, then you will not experience death. You will not see death. He doesn't mean you won't die. He means that when you die, you will not experience the pains and pangs of death. There'll be a difference when you die knowing Christ. If you hold to my teaching... The truth. The truth will set you free. It'll set you free from the blinding that Satan gives to the world that appears in this passage. The truth will liberate, it will deliver you, it will emancipate you from the bondage of sin. And that's what sin does. Sin enslaves. You probably know this through your own experience that sin is habit forming. It entangles. It progressively gets a grip on us and it's difficult It's nearly impossible to break. Christ has to set us free. His truth sets us free. His truth brings about freedom and change in our life. It liberates us from sin, from its penalty, from its um, 
pleasures or its um, practices here and now, but one day it will also liberate it, he will liberate us from sin's presence when we get to the next stage, to the next life, new heaven, new earth. He will set us free. So we're in the middle process, set free from sin's penalty. Right now, he is, as we know him and know his truth and obey his truth and submit to him and follow him, then you will experience a freedom, a changing in you of the power of sin in you, that he gives now another power and that you don't have to give in to your sinful nature. There's this power of the Spirit living in you. But you need to be following him constantly, holding to his truth is what he says to us as followers, listening, learning, studying, obeying it. That's why the Bible is so crucial, so important, why the devil attacks it so much. That's what Jesus says to his followers. What does Jesus say to those who reject his claims? Because not everybody who was listening to him that day thought it was wonderful, the things that he was saying. And so too today, there'll be people who will reject it, people who will challenge it, people who will mock it. And what do they say? Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. They said, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not true. It's a pretty technical point. What they're picking up on is that if in Jewish, in the judicial system, you needed two witnesses to, ver- to make a witness, uh, um, a statement um, valid or acceptable. You had to verify it by two witnesses. You couldn't just have one witness. And so they're saying, Jesus, you're speaking that by yourself and therefore that's not valid. Um, to which Jesus gives both a very cheeky but also a very honest reply. This is an actual working out of John 1.5. You know, John says that light had come into the world, light shines in the darkness, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand him. Verse 14, Jesus says, My claim is outside and above the judicial verification system. I know something you don't know. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I know who I am and I know why I'm here. They're the sorts of things he's saying in this chapter. I'm from heaven. I'm divine. There is no falsehood in me. So when you say my testimony is not true, then you are the ones who are incorrect because I am in total accord with what my father and he is the second witness. And then Jesus plays that little game of, okay, you want two witnesses? Well, then there's what I say and there's what my father says, which only provokes them because then they say, where is your father? And we may read that as simply them responding and saying, well, where's your father? Where is this witness? They're not doing that. They're being a little bit more insulting than that they're saying really to question a person's paternity their father was really a slur on their character and upon their testimony their legitimacy so when they say where is your father it's got this cultural insult attached to it which Jesus seems to ignore and he just simply says you don't know me and you don't know my father because if you knew me you would know him also and later on in the chapter verse 48 they're going to call Jesus being demonized they're going to insult him by calling him a Samaritan and Jesus response each time is you really don't know who I am and I'm trying to tell you who I am and you don't know who my father is which by the way indicates you can only know God in reality through Jesus we only know God through Jesus absolutely essential for us otherwise we'll end up in eternal darkness Verse 21, Jesus continues the conversation. He says, look, I'm going away. He means I'm going to go to the cross. 
I'm going to go away. You're going to look for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, heaven, you can't come. He's being pretty blunt with them. Again, they are, in verse 22, they're mocking and a little bit insulting. They say to him, this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Is he going to commit suicide? Which has a totally different cultural meaning than it does for us. To the Jews, suicide was the worst thing you could do. To somebody who committed suicide, they believed that the person who committed suicide not only went to hell, they went to the darkest corner of hell, or they went to the worst part of it. And not only that, God would punish that person's descendants who were still alive in this world. So the Jews are saying, is he going to do that? Is he going to kill himself? And he, he will be punished and they'll be punished. We're certainly not going there. We're not doing that. So no, we're not going where you're going. They're being insulting. Then Jesus says to them, verse 23 and 24, look, you are from below. You're from this world. I'm from above. I'm from another world. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You're of this world. I am not of this world. We're worlds apart in where we are from and what we are talking about. Um, you will die in your sins, he says, verse 24, if you do not believe I am. Verse 24. Not, as the NIV will have it for you, um, you will die, I, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you'll indeed die in your sins. Gives the sense of it correctly, but misses the punchiness of it. Unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sins. That's worth noting. Not just to call Jesus Christ good or great is enough. You need to call him God. You need to come to that point of understanding. Otherwise, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe I am. Only believers in him get rescued from sin. Then they say in response, again, a little bit of a jab, who are you? Who do you think you are making such claims? Jesus says, exactly what I've been telling you all along. Verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man on the cross, when you lift up the Son of Man, then some of you will know I am. Verse 28. Later on in John's Gospel, John chapter 13, verse 39, he will, Jesus will say, I'm telling you all of this ahead of time so that you will know I am. He told them, I'm going to the cross. This is going to happen. I want you to know. And then you will seek me. Then you will find me. He is desirous of people coming to faith in him. And on this occasion, the Jewish leaders certainly didn't. But verse 30 indicates that some people put their faith in him. They came to believe that he was who he was saying he was. And probably at various levels. So my question, applications to us. Have you put your faith in him? Have you come to the point of understanding who he is? Acknowledging and confessing that he is God come into our world. God the Son, the Messiah. The one who died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. Not his sin, but our sin. In order to set us free, to take us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of ignorance into his revelation. If you've never experienced that, if you've never asked, 
then all you need to do is to acknowledge both your need, your failure, you're a sinner, but also to acknowledge who he is and to thank him for what he's done and simply to ask him for forgiveness, to tell him that you submit to him, to speak to him and to say, I want to receive you into my life and I want to follow you in my life. Have you put your faith in him? It's quite possible that people can hear these stories all of their life and then instead of it coming into the light, they stay in the darkness. Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy magazine, was raised apparently in a minister's home, went off track into the darkness. Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood, went off into darkness. Mao Zedong, raised under missionary teaching, went off into darkness. The Lord Jesus received and trusted and followed leads into light. The Lord Jesus questioned, ignored, rejected, leads into darkness. Have you put your faith in him? Is it obvious? Are you growing? Well then, for those of us, finally, who are believers, continue to walk in the light. Continue in his word. Keep your eyes on him. Stay under the influence of the cloud, his leadership. Let his light shine through you so that others can see it. And look forward to that ultimate day and final glory when we will be the redeemed sons and daughters of God in glory, being the lights of the universe. I'll close with this. You ever thought about this? The universe in which we now live, billions of stars and galaxies, we will outlast it. We will replace it. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. But this present universe will be rolled up and will go away. But we, in Christ, live beyond that. And we get to glorify and serve him now and also in the next phase. Let me lead you in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have declared very clearly that you are the light of the world and that you call people to follow you and you promise that if we follow you, then we walk in light and life and if we don't follow you, then we walk in darkness. Lord Jesus, help us, all of us, and help our loved ones through us to put our faith in you for you to live in us and to live through us. Give us opportunities this week, Lord, to be listening to you, to continue in your word, to be a light before others and to stay under the influence of your leadership, under the cloud, responding to your promptings, following your lead, so that through this, your purposes will be achieved. We pray in your name. Amen.